0: God just keeps bringing to mind a thought that I need to share with you. Open your Bible. This is not my message. I'll preach in a minute. Open your Bible to the most important passage in the Bible for church members. It's Hebrews chapter thirteen. Let me just show you this. I've got an entire message on this subject, and but it and, and I won't preach it tonight, but. Folks, you've got an incredible church here. Are you aware of that? I, 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 sp- I, I will speak in an average year, uh, what regime, I don't know, 40 or 50 churches a year. I've spoken in hundreds of churches, I guess. In the United States and 23 different foreign countries, I think, something like that. And um, what you have here is incredible and unusual and I'm very concerned about somebody here taking it for granted and missing out on it. Now, the most important passage to pastors in the Bible is 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 2 and 3. But I think the most important passage to church members in the entire Bible, it'd be good for every church member to put this verse somewhere up in your house as a reminder because... If all all you've got to do to lose what you have in your church here is for one or two families to get crosswise with your pastor. That's all all it takes. It'll just wipe it out. I've watched it. I've been in churches. I, I was, listen to me, I was in a church three weeks ago in another state, I won't name where it was, three or four weeks ago I was in a church in another state and the folks in that church were telling me they said, Have you heard about this particular church that was just a few miles from our church here? And they named the church. And I had heard of it years ago. I hadn't heard of anything about it for years. And they said it was one of the strongest Baptist churches in the nation. They said it was a powerhouse all over this whole area for God. They said, It was running over 900 people a week. The services were powerful and exciting. And I'm listening to hear what else they're about to say. And they said, the church is no longer in existence. It's gone. Completely gone. This is only 20 years ago. This is one of the most powerful churches in the United States of America. It is completely gone. And this verse right here probably explains how it wound up being destroyed. Look look at the verse. In fact, read it out loud with me, would you please, Hebrews 13, 17. Obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls as they that must give account that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. Now let me break that verse down for you, all right? Here's what it says. Obey them that have the rule over you. It's talking about your pastor. It's talking about you seek his counsel, you follow his counsel. Obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves. And the word submit there is not, it's, that word in the Greek is not used anywhere else in the entire New Testament except right there in that verse. It's not saying as wives submit yourselves to your own husbands. It's not that, it's a different word. And what that word means, if you study it is this. Yield your naturally combative nature. You are going to have a tendency to do this in relation to your pastor. And it says, don't do that. Obey them, have a rule, on them. submit yourselves. And then it says, why? For they watch for your souls. Do you know what the job of the pastor is? Here's the job of the pastor. Oh, I see a need in somebody's life. They watch for your souls. God, give me a message that'll meet those people's need. And he does. And then you say, that preacher's firing straight at me from the pulpit. No, he's watching for your soul. He's trying to help you. If you have that need, somebody else has that need. He, he spent hours Every message you have heard me preach was once preached to one person or two or three people or a family in our church. And everybody else in the church just benefited from it. And now people all over the country benefit from it. But there was somebody I saw that needed it. And I wound up preaching it for them, for the whole church. Felt like that's what. They watch for your souls as they that must give account. Now, think about this. One of these days, your pastor will stand and give account before God for you. You will not stand before God and give account for your pastor. He will stand before God and give account for you. Now, you will give account for how you treat him, but you won't give account for his life. He will give account for your life. Now, it says, for they watch for your souls as they that must give account that they may do it with joy and not with grief. Now, I want to pause right here and ask a question. Pastor, I'm going to pick out three or four people here and call their name. I'm not really going to do it. I just wanted to shake you up. What if I just picked out somebody's name at random here and look at your pastor and say to your pastor, When you hear their name, does it bring you joy or does it bring you grief? If I call your name and your pastor hears your name right now, does it bring a smile to his face or does it cause him to say, oh, I've tried to help them. I've tried to talk to them. I've tried to counsel them. I've tried to love them. They won't let me. That they may do it with joy and not with grief for that messes up your pastor. Is that what it says? Uh Uh-uh. It says because if your name doesn't bring joy to your pastor's heart, that is unprofitable for you. You are in trouble. You're not gonna be in trouble You are in trouble right now. I'm standing here thinking, in fact, let me tell a story right here, all right? Uh, You heard the sermon I preached this morning on sinning against great light. You know why that sermon was preached? Because we had a 19 or 20-year-old young man in our church who without giving his parents any notice what he was doing, one morning at 4.30 in the morning, he got up, packed his bags, left his house, moved across town with another young person. Dropped out of church completely, gone completely. And his mom, I watched his mother Physically, I could see her aging overnight. You can see it in her countenance. I tried to, his dad tried to contact him, couldn't get him. His mom tried to contact, his mom was just falling apart. She was just a basket case. And I said, where is he? I I wanna go talk to him. I'm his pastor, I wanna help him. I tried to find him, I couldn't find him. About three or four weeks went by, finally... I caught him. I, I, I got a, a message across to him and I said, can I take you out to eat? I love you. I'd just like to sit down and talk to you. And he said, yes. I was surprised. We went out to eat. I sat across from him in the restaurant and I just loved him. And I said, "Andy, you know what you're doing to your mama? Not only that, but do you realize that you, you have so much potential here? You can't just throw all this away. Long story short, I said to him, look, man, we miss you at church. Just come to church Sunday, will you? Would you just come to church? He said, yes, I will. The message I preached this morning, sinning against great light, I preached that Sunday morning. I had one person in my sights. I was trying to reach one person young man. Everybody else can be helped. I'm trying to, you know what I'm talking about. I'm trying to reach one young man. He said all the way through the service, all the way through the invitation, he did not move. After the service, he's standing out, chatting with a few folks. I walked up to him and I said, hey man, how you doing? His head dropped. He said, not very good. I said, you know, I preached that whole message for you, don't you? He said, Yes, sir, I know that. I said, You're not right with God yet, are you? He said, No. I said, Are you ready to get right with God? He said, I think I need to. <laughs> Walk back in my office knelt in front of my desk and the tears flowed. I could take you and show you the stains on the floor. Really, I could. Wept his way back to God. Uh, Helped him get his life straight. He had a contract on an apartment. I said, forget the stinking contract. Buy your way out of it. Get back home where you belong. He did. Listen to everything I said. By the way, I think I'm right. He's a senior right now at a Bible college, isn't he? In the state of Texas. He's a senior at a Bible college. He's active in church. He's winning souls. He's busy for God. He's a powerhouse for God right now. I said, All that to add one more thought. I said, I went to his daddy a week or two later and I said, Brother, you and I got to talk. He said, What about? I said, I got to know something. Why did it work when I talked to your son? I said, I've had other teenagers over the years go haywire and I've sat down and talked to them and usually it doesn't do any good. And I said, I really honestly don't get it. I don't understand how is it that I was able to talk to your son and he listened to me. And that brother looked me in the eye. And this was the youngest of three children. The other two already grown and married by this time. He looked at me and he said, Brother Davis, we've been in your church for several years. We were in this other church for quite a few years. And they had moved to our area and got involved in our church. And um, he said, that boy's been in church all his life. He said, only no, that, but uh, he's been homeschooled or Christian schooled all his life. And he said, "We've been in church regularly—Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night—all his life." And he said, "I want to tell you something." He said, "That twenty-year-old son of mine has never, ever, one time heard a pastor badmouthed. Never." he said, not only that, he never will. He said, therefore, when I needed you, you were there for him and he would listen to you. Obey them to have a role over you. Submit yourselves for they watch for your souls and they must give account that they may do it with joy and not with grief for that is unprofitable for you. A church and a pastor is a safety net for your family. Now I don't care who you are. I am a grandfather. And I have been a pastor for 36 and a half years. And now I have a pastor. For the last year and a half, I have a pastor. You know what I think about it? I love it. Ask my grandchildren what they, what? Their grandpa thinks about his new pastor. I seek his counsel. I seek his prayers. I seek his understanding. You see, listen to me. This is all free. I'll preach in a minute, all right? You see, God, I I have people, I travel around the country, I've got this DVD ministry, they go everywhere, all right? And People come up to me, and they say, uh, what do you think about this? And my first question is always, what pa- would your pastor tell you? And every once in a while, I'll hear this. Well, you know, our pastor, he's only 25 years old, or 30 years old, and he's got these little children. His children aren't grown yet, and he doesn't really understand this area. And I look back at them, and I say to them, you don't get it. God will tell your pastor things he won't tell anybody else. Doesn't have anything to do with how experienced he is. If he doesn't have the experience he loves you, he'll find out what he needs to find out. But God won't give me what he will give him for you. God will give him stuff for you. He won't give to anybody else. How do you know? Because I was a pastor for 36 and a half years. I had it it happen over and over again. I was astounded at how it happened over and over again. I mean, it was just like God would just, somebody walk in my office, they start asking me questions and I'd send up an SOS toward heaven. I'd say, God, I don't don't know what to tell them. It's like God said, I'm glad you asked. I'm here to tell you. I just tell them. They'd walk out and I'd start writing it down. Did you ever do that, preacher? I've gotten entire sermons, entire sermons where they walked in and said, Pastor, we need some counsel, we need some help. And I start telling them stuff I don't know. I start writing it down. Later, I preach an entire, I've said to people in my office before they walked out, Now I hope y'all won't feel bad, but I got an entire message while I was talking to you and I'll be preaching it sometime in the next few weeks. So don't feel bad about it. Don't feel like I'm firing at you. I just never understood this till you came with the problem. People have to have a pastor and they have to follow. You know what the illustration of this is? I told y'all I'll preach in a minute. This is all free. The illustration of this was Moses standing up on the mountain, holding up his rod. The battle is going on with the Amalekites in the valley below in the book of Exodus. As long as Moses held up his hands, they won in the battle. But his hands got heavy. His hands started to slip. As his hands started slipping, he saw men about to die. He shoves his hands back up real quick, but they get so heavy, he can't hold them up. He looks down. He says, I can't hold this up. Aaron comes and runs on one side. Aaron, her, runs on the other side. Here, Moses, we got a big rock for you to sit on. And his hands were held up one holding up on this side, one holding up on this side. And as long as his hands were up, they won. When your pastor's hands get too heavy and fall, you lose the battles. You will be the one that is defeating. I have two burdens, two major burdens as I travel around the country. Number one is for the family. Number two, frankly, I'm I'm not complaining here, but ask my wife. After 36 and a half years of pastoring, it almost killed me. I had a major heart attack and I realized the reason I'm in evangelism is because I was gonna die if I didn't. And I have people who look at my schedule and they say, You mean that is easier than pastoring? And I say, you have no idea what it's like to be a pastor. They are the Navy SEALs of the spiritual life. And everything you can do to lift up his hand, you will be able to keep the blessings that God has given you and you really don't want to lose those blessings that God has given you. I was sitting in my office, this was several years ago now, there was a young lady who, walked, who had come into my office and the, the window was open on the door where anybody could see in and I was talking to her because she was not happy at all. She was about 15 years of age living in a divided home. At first, she was living with her mom and her biological dad. Then her mom and her biological dad got divorced. Then... Um, she's living just with her mom. Well, she wasn't happy the first way when they were together because they fought all the time. Then she wasn't happy when her mom got divorced and she's living with her mom without her biological dad. She's not happy then. Then, now, her mom has remarried and her stepfather is an angry man and she is really unhappy. And she's sitting there talking to me and she made one statement to me that gave birth to this entire message that I'm sharing with you tonight. In 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 8, it fell on a day that Elisha passed to Shunem, where was a great woman, and she constrained him to eat bread. And so it was that as oft as he passed by, he turned in thither to eat bread. And she said unto her husband, Behold, now I perceive that this is the holy man of God which passeth by us continually. Let us make a little chamber, I pray thee, on the wall. Let us set for him there a bed and a table and a stool and a candlestick. And it shall be when he cometh to us that he shall turn in thither. And it fell on a day that he came thither. And he turned into the chamber and lay there. And he said to Gehazi, his servant, call this Shunammite. And when he had called her, she stood before him and he said unto him, Say now unto her, Behold, thou hast been careful for us with all this care. What is to be done for thee? Wouldest thou be spoken for to the king? Elisha had connections, knew the king personally. To the captain of the host, he had connections there. And she answered, notice it, I dwell among mine own people. Don't need you talking to the king. Don't need you talking to the captain of the host. Very happy right where I am. And he said, what then is to be done for her? Gehazi answered, Verily, she hath no child, and her husband is old. And he said, Call her. And when he had called her, she stood in the door. And he said, About this season, according to the time of life, thou shalt embrace a son. And she said, Wonderful. Elisha, thank you. Praise God. Uh Uh-uh. Nay, my Lord, thou man of God. Don't say that if you're lying to me. Do not lie unto thine handmaid. And. The woman conceived and bare a son at that season that Elisha had said unto her according to the time of life. Now, we call this woman the Shunammite woman. It simply means we do not know her name, but we do know that she was from the town of Shunamm. Though she was an unnamed woman, she was by no means an insignificant woman. She's the only woman I know of that the Bible calls a great woman. The word in the Hebrew means great, prominent, or influential. The same word is used in this passage in Psalms where it says great is the Lord. And so it means she was an outstanding example of a godly woman. Now, there may be many that we might call great women, and we may or may not be correct, but here is clear authority. This, really wa- wa- this woman really truly was a great woman. And uh, in what ways do we see her greatness? First of all, read it with me, would you please? She had a deep contentment with her lot and her position in life. Notice, what when Elisha said to her, what, what can I do for thee? Can I talk to the king or to the captain of the host? And uh, she said, I dwell among mine own people. Where was she? At home with her husband, later with her husband and child. Where could she have been? Elisha said, do you want me to talk to the king for you? You've been awfully good to me. She could have been maybe in a royal position with royal treatment. A lady representative in the king's palace, royal income, royal provisions. Did you know what? There's something beautiful about a man or a woman who want what they have and have what they want. I've studied this thing for years and I've noticed a great truth. The women who are turning out contented children who are happy and serving God are women who are contented and happy with their position in life as a wife, mother, and homemaker. This is an interesting picture to me right here. The Doolittles. I don't know whether you knew Bob Doodlittle or not, Bob Doolittle and his wife Marilyn spent years with all of their children, I think they had eight or ten children, living in the jungle in Brazil. When they first went to Brazil, this was, would have been back in the 60s, 70s, and they didn't have the money, they didn't have enough sport to do anything else. They just set up this tent in Brazil. The jungle, you want to know how how much jungle it is? Just a few yards from that tent, I have been to the spot where this tent is at. I've spoken at a camp that is located there now and there is a lake and that is the snakeskin that came out of the lake just a few yards from their tent. Quite a snakeskin, wouldn't you say? And they were very content and happy. I remember we, Brother Doolittle and I were riding along the road one day when I was visiting there 12, 14 years ago, something like that. And um, he pulled over. He said, Brother Davis, as he pulled over, he said, you see this little lady over here? He said, this is one of the first ladies we won to Christ after we got to Brazil. And the lady walked over. Hi, Brother Doolittle, And they're carrying on in Portuguese, you know. And we pulled away and he said, Brother Davis, her mom or dad won. I forget which one it was. Her mom or dad won, was swallowed by a snake like that right there. Now, and you know what? Every one of the Doolittle children all followed Christ, all serving Christ, all happy in the Lord, had almost nothing. And do you know why they were content? Because dad and mom were content. He showed me the spot when I was there. He showed me this spot where they used to go and stand next to a creek. And the whole family would go down there. He said, Brother Dave, we spent hours at this little hole right here. He was almost crying. The was, he said we'd swing on that rope right there and drop in the, in the creek right here. He said we'd sit over here and read the Bible and pray together. We'd laugh. We'd swim. The kids would play. And you know what that was? It was just wonderful family interaction with parents tying heart strings with their children and their children loving their parents and loving God. Now, don't misunderstand me. I do not believe it is a sin for a lady to have goals in life or work some outside the home. Proverbs 31, lady was a lady who bought a field and planted a vineyard. But I will tell you this, the old-fashioned concept of a lady primarily being a wife and a mother is a Bible concept that is really hard to be improved on. Now, I don't think you ought to endure your position, ladies. Fall in love with it. Enjoy it. Thank God for it. And don't ever let the liberated woman concept of our day make you feel guilty for being a dedicated wife and mother. And don't let those days when everything goes wrong at home take away your contentment with your calling in life. Ladies, your position as a wife and mother is more than a position. It is a ministry and a calling from God. And this first point is as important. Important for men, as it is for women, have faith, have vision, have goals. But when you're in God's will doing what God wants you to do, be content. I've learned in whatsoever state I am, prison or outside of prison, therewith to be content. Now, the first point is really a foundation for the second point. The first point, she had a deep contentment with her lot and her position in life. And the second point is, read it please, she had no wrong expectations. What'd she say? When he said, you want me to speak to the king or to the captain of the host? She just looked by and she said, Mr. Prophet Elisha, I I dwell among mine own people. And when he said, "Uh, you're going to have a child, she said, don't give me wrong expectations. I can't handle that. You tell me I'm going to have a child and I don't. I can't handle that. No, he said, you will embrace a son. Now, listen to this. Have faith, have vision, have goals, have trust in God. Learn to ask God for the things you need, the things he wants you to have, but get rid of most, if not all, of your expectations. Expectations destroy friendships. Expectations produce anger. Expectations are the enemies of your being able to develop a grateful spirit. Expectations damage contentment. Expectations produce bitterness and disappointment. You remember what I said? I was sitting in my office talking to this 15-year-old teenage girl and she is so, she is so upset. She's Her mom's divorced now. They didn't get along when... She had a dad in the home. They didn't get along well. When she didn't have a dad in the home now, she's living with an angry stepfather and he's got all these rules and regulations and he's angry and mom is angry. And uh, in the middle of all that she says to me, she says, I just want a normal home, whatever that is, And then she said, you know, Pastor Davis, she said, I counseled with somebody else and he told me that my problem was my expectations. She said, he looked at me and said, expectations ruin relationships. And and I told him, and I said, well, I said, what'd you just say? I'd never heard those three words. I said, wait a minute, wait a minute. What did you just say? She said, Oh, he told me that expectations ruin relationships. And and I told him that I just, I said, no, no, no. Whoa, 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 whoa. I said, let me get my pencil out. He told you what? I wrote down. Read it, please. Expectations ruin relationships. I wrote that on that sheet of paper. This whole sermon came for her telling me that. And you know what? It is true. Let me clarify. Our expectations are built on what we perceive to be our rights. I have a right to be happy. I have a right to not be treated that way. For example, expectations can destroy godly parenting. If I feel I have a right to have godly children, because the work that I'm putting into their training, then those expectations are a problem. Now, should I have a goal to have godly children? Yes. Should I believe that if I'm humble, obey God, do my part, trust God, work with my children, keep my priorities right? Should I believe that God will give me godly children? Yes. That doesn't mean I have a right to have godly children. That doesn't mean I have a right to have godly grandchildren. By God's grace right now, my children and grandchildren are all all serving God, all doing right. I want to tell you, I would never get cocky and say, well, I promise you they're all going to do right. Somebody might, could one of these days go the wrong way. I don't think they will. If I even see them starting to slip, I call them up and I say, hey man, are you doing all right? I love you. Your grandpa's here for you. What can I do? I'm here for you. Anything you need. Can I talk to you for a little while? My children, my grown children will call me up. It, it, It happened in the last few days. One of my grandchildren called me up and said, Dad told me I ought to call you and see what you thought about this. I said, well, tell me about it. He starts telling me about it. I said, well, what do you think I think about that? He said, I bet you agree with dad, don't you? (laughs) And we went round and round for a little while. I said, man, I'm so glad you called me. You call me anytime now. I'm here for you. You know that? And he listened. Thank God he listened. Yeah. Now, I don't have a right to have godly children or grandchildren. There's a message on the table entitled What to Expect from a 12-year-old. When I first preached that message from Luke chapter 2, and I was noticing how that you see Jesus three times in his life, you see him as a baby, you see him at age 12, then you see him at age 30. And I thought, why did God show us Jesus at age 12? So I started studying that and saw seven key things that Jesus had in his life at age 12. And I preached this sermon for our people and I thought I was preaching it to help Parents have proper goals. You know what I found out? I found out that that message motivates children themselves. We start getting these calls. We've had loads of them now where somebody said, my nine or 10 or 11 or 12 or 13 or 14 or 15 or 16 year old child watched that video and after they watched that, they, was, one called us just a while back and said, amazing thing happened at our house last night. The dinner was over, and our 11-year-old son asked to be excused from the table and got up. We hadn't said a word to him about this. He started clearing the table and washing the dishes. And dad said, I looked around and said, son, this is wonderful, but why are you doing this? You've never done anything like this. He said, I watched that 12-year-old message last night, And Mr. Davis said that I was supposed to be responsible by age 12, and I'm not very responsible. I'm 11 years old. I think I better start getting with it. You see, that provides seven key goals for young people's lives. Here's what you see in Jesus at age 12, and here's what you should see in your children. Young people here tonight, this is what you should be by age 12. You know what I see? I see some 30-year-olds sometime who don't have this. A mature sense of responsibility, purpose, and destiny. Can I tell you, you, are not, you were not put here to play video games 24-7. I didn't, I'm not preaching against video games. I'm just telling you, you weren't put here to do that 24 7. You you weren't put here to text. Your whole life. You weren't put here to cruise the internet your whole life. You weren't put here to watch videos and TV 24 7. You're put here because God has a purpose for your life. Jesus said, Wish you not I must be about my Father's business. You should have that not by the time you're 20, by the time you're 12. A keen sense of discernment, especially in relation to the company he keeps. Who was he around? He wasn't with the local yokels cruising up and down Jerusalem Boulevard. He was with the doctors in the temple. And he was hearing them and asking them questions. I love to spend time with young people, them asking questions. You should have a burning hunger to understand truth and wisdom. Fully obedient. He went with his uh, mother and adopted dad consistently respectful, fully committed to doing the will of God and an unmistakable godliness about his life. Now, those expectations are not built on parental rights. They are simply God-given goals that emphasize the responsibility of young people to respond to God and the responsibility of parents to train their children. And read it, please. God's expectations are never unreasonable. Somebody said, read it please. Emphasize rights, and you will have a rebellion. Emphasize responsibilities, and you will have a revival. And that's why that message motivates young people because it emphasizes what God expects and what God expects is never wrong or heavy. Jesus said, "My yoke is easy. My burden is light." What man expects based on perceived rights is almost always oppressive. One parent explained it to his child this way, "No, I don't have a right to be treated respectfully by you, but I do have a responsibility to teach you to be respectful. Parents, if you're not teaching your children to respect others, to stand up before their elders... To speak respectfully, then you are failing in your responsibility. How did Daniel survive in Daniel chapter 1? Because he was so respectful to Melzar, the prince of the eunuchs, that Melzar gave him that period of time where he had the water and the vegetables and he wound up great and it was his respectfulness that saved his life. Can I tell you something? If you do nothing but train your children to show the proper respect and honor that alone will be phenomenal for your child's life. We had a family visit at our church some time back. And I had their visitors card so I went to visit them. Got to the door. The fellow opened the door, recognized me, said, "I'm amazed you came. What a blessing." He said, "You know, He said, I'm not leaving my church. He said, I'm I'm a member of such and such a church and I'm going to stay there. But he said, I heard about your church. My wife and I just decided to visit. He said, you know, pastor, before you leave, I got to tell you something. He said, I didn't really have much hope for our country till I came to your church. Listen to what he said next, young people. You've already got this. Don't lose this, all right? He said, I saw something at your church I have not seen anywhere for years and years and years. I saw teenagers who walked up to me, shook my hand as a visitor, introduced themselves to me and thanked me for being in church. He said, I thought most of the teenagers were all selfish and self-centered. He said, it gave me hope for our whole country. You had some young people there that went away and out of their their own element and reached out to others. You know how to tell when a young person is maturing in God? They're not self-centered. Do my thing. Anybody going to be nice to me? If you're not nice to me, I'm going to go out and tell everybody you weren't nice to me well why don't you just go be nice to everybody else huh I love it these children coming up shaking my hand I love it when I walk over and they automatically stand up because the Bible says you rise up before the hoary head you know what the hoary head is it is all that stuff right there that it took me 60 years to get and now I can't get rid of. And the Bible says, when, when an older man comes walking over to where you are, you don't sit there and just reach up and shake his hand. You jump right up. You show respect to him. You show honor to him. And God will bless you for that. The Shunammite woman gave, expecting nothing in return. Luke 6.35 says, Love your enemies and do good, and lend, hoping for nothing again. Now, and your reward shall be great, and and so on. Preacher, there is a really scary thing that happens in churches sometimes. You know what it is? It's based on the principle out of that verse. Lend, hoping for nothing again. I used to tell my people if somebody comes to you and wants to borrow money don't loan anybody money unless you're truly from your heart willing to give it to them. You know why? Because this brother over here borrows $1,000 from this brother over here and says, now, brother, two weeks from now, I'm going to pay you back. I've got some stuff coming in. I'm going to pay you back. And so two weeks from now, this brother over here is waiting on this brother to walk up with a cash in his hand. And this brother over here dodges him. Expectations, say it, ruin relationships. And the other brother doesn't say a word about it. And all day long this brother's waiting to see if that brother's going to pay him that thousand bucks and that night he gets home and he says, honey brother so and so is a liar. And I'm afraid he might be a stinking thief too. And the fellowship in the church is destroyed. If you're not willing to To give somebody the money. If they come to you and say, would you loan me $100, $50, $20? If you're willing to give him the money, give it to him. And say say to him, now, if you want to pay me back, you can. But I really do not expect you to pay me back. So, it's yours. God bless you. Hope you enjoy it. Expectations ruin relationships. Listen to this article. Somebody wrote... An advice columnist, they said, I feel as though I'm being treated unfairly by my across the street neighbors. We've been good friends for many years, have done each other several favors. Their daughter's getting married next month. They know I have a small video business. My specialty is weddings. I've not been asked to video their wedding and I'm terribly hurt by this. Am I entitled to an explanation? I sure would like to have one. I'm an older guy, I'm mature enough to take it, but I sure don't know how to act toward them. I'm sure I'll get them an invitation to the wedding and then what? And the advice columnist wrote back very wisely. Go be gracious and keep your mouth shut. Your neighbors don't owe you the job. In fact, they may have assumed you'd prefer to be a guest instead of an employee. You see it? Listen to this one. Two years ago on the night before my wedding, two members of the wedding party, my brothers, told me they were low on funds and would have to wait a while to send their wedding gifts. And I said that it was perfectly okay and not to give it a thought. Since one year is the time allowed to send wedding gifts, according to Leticia Baldridge, I don't know who she is. They're long past due. Both brothers have been employed steadily and seem to be living well. Two months ago, one of the brothers asked for my new mailing address so he could send me a card. Three weeks later, he apologized, said he was mailing the card that day and it never came. I'm still good friends with both brothers, but I feel insulted. Two members of my wedding party didn't even send a card, let alone a gift. Should I tell them how I feel or just let it pass? The brother who said he was sending a card may be getting married this year. Should I be the better person and send a gift? The advice is really good. For the umpteenth time, a gift is something a person chooses to give. It is not mandatory. Preacher, please don't have a heart attack with this next picture I'm about to throw up, okay? This next picture is one of the most frightening pictures in a church. There it is. Do you recognize it? It's a shower. It's a shower. Hold on to him, sister. Don't let him croak right here in front of everybody. All right? Now, do you know why I said that? Because I was a pastor for 36 and a half years and we had more problems with showers. Somebody called me in the church two weeks ago with a major problem in our church now with a shower. And I said, you know what? I'm not the pastor anymore. (laughs) I said, I used to lose sleep over this. I don't lose any sleep. Brother Basin gets it. Tell him if I can help him, let me know. (laughs) You know what happens? You ever try to figure out who? You can write all the rules you want. You can't cover every detail. It is virtually impossible cover every detail of the wedding shower and there's somebody in your church who will give, who comes to every wedding shower. They don't miss a lot and they always give nice gifts and then they come up to their wedding shower or their daughter comes up to their wedding shower and they're here's the word, they are expecting oh we're going to have a nice wedding shower and five people show up And how can you control it? What can you about do about it? And did you know, if you forget to announce it, your name is mud for sure. You are in real trouble, brother. Of course, your pastor would never forget anything except the barbecue. But then you... What do you do with that kind of situation? Then you get people upset and this family's upset at that and over there and somebody's taking the offense of somebody else over here and and you walk in on Sunday morning and all at once, all that wonderful singing, it's like there's something pressing down on the spirit of the service. Listen to this one. My husband and I have been married 12 years. We have two children, 11-year-old daughter, 10-year-old son. Both been involved in sports since first grade, mostly soccer and basketball. The problem is my husband, he has very high expectations of our children's performance in sports. He lectures them before the game, tells them what to do during the game, criticizes them after the game. He screams so much, his voice becomes hoarse. He made both kids cry when he was assistant coach for my daughter's basketball team last season. He had several outbursts, including swearing. One embarrassing performance resulted in a stern warning for the referee. My husband behaves this way well, only when sports are involved, but I can't stand this much longer. He thinks I'm crazy, he says I don't understand because I never played sports. I need your advice. I told you the other night we had the men's and women's basketball and volleyball leagues. I used to try to tell folks here's what you expect in sports. Number one do not always expect to win. Somebody's going to lose sometime. Now give it your best Try to win because the thing you should expect out of yourself is that you give your best. And whether you win or lose, you have a good attitude. Leave the outcome to God. Did you ever hear a lady nag her husband? Honey, this isn't going to work. See, it's not working See what I'm trying to tell you? I'm trying to tell you it, it, it ain't going to work. See, I told you it wouldn't work and you better be glad I'm a submissive wife or I'd have never tried it to start with. Why do ladies nag? They have expectations based on perceived rights and those expectations are not being met. Let me suggest to you here, give all your your expectations to God and then ask God by faith to let you have whatever He wants you to have. So many people wind up bitter or confused because of wrong expectations or unfulfilled expectations. You remember Luke chapter 24, the disciples walking along on the road to Emmaus. The greatest events in 6,000 years of world history had just happened. Jesus, the Lamb of God, had just offered himself as the supreme sacrifice for the sins of everyone in the whole world. He died, he was buried, and that ain't all. Three days later, he rose from the grave, triumphant over death and hell and the grave. And those two guys were despondent. Study it. They're defeated. They're down in the mouth. They're walking along. They don't recognize Jesus. And they said, He said, Why why are you so sad? They said, Oh, we trusted. We expected, you see it, that it had been He which should have redeemed all Israel. We expected that there would he would be a political and military Messiah who would lead Israel to throw off the yoke of the bondage of the Roman Empire, and it didn't happen that way. We're all defeated. Did you know you can experience? Listen to me, preacher. I've had people come to a church service where we had a just a glory service with the presence of God all over the fa- all over the place. Wonderful singing. <coughs> Uh, The message was right on target, wonderful altar call, folks saved, folks baptized, somebody walks out, says it was a terrible, rotten service. You know why? Because they walked in with that attitude. And when you walk in with that attitude, you walk out with that attitude. Because you didn't want it to be a good service, so it wasn't. You were upset about somebody about something, so you expected, I've had people upset because we had a wonderful service. Well, didn't you know we had this problem in the church and you just stood up and acted like there wasn't any problem. What'd you want me to do? Stand up all down in the mouth and say, oh, folks, it's really terrible around here. We may as well all give up and go home. What you supposed to do? No. So many times our expectations bring us disappointment and discouragement and leave us disillusioned, and it's easy to become grouchy or even bitter. Expectations are a major reason that many marriages get in trouble early on. You hear things like this I didn't expect it to be like this, I didn't expect him to act like this, I didn't expect her to be so cold. I thought surely he loved me enough to change after we got married. I really thought he would quit that bad habit for me. I skinny any pastor or counselor, a couple comes in having problems and you hear phrases like this. Well, I expected him to read the Bible and he doesn't do it. I expected him to be home from work by six o'clock when he didn't make it. I just threw his supper out the back door. I just expected after working hard all day, I might at least have supper on the table when I got home and I was upset when it wasn't. It happens on the job. Well, I've been there a year and a half and I really thought I would have gotten a raise six months ago. It happens in the home. I really thought my brother or sister would treat me better than that. It happens in the church. Well, I didn't expect to be treated like that in the church. You know, maybe you ought to post these three words on the refrigerator at home. Read them again, please. Expectations ruin relations. Give all your expectations to God. Let Him give you the expectations He wants you to have. I heard a man tell how he and his sister saw their father go through a special little routine after every meal for years and years. The father would get up from the meal, walk around the table, kiss mom, and say, thank you for that delicious meal. Do you realize what those girls would expect out of their husband after they got married? And what if he doesn't do it? Watch out for your expectations around funerals. Emotions run high. Funerals, weddings, courtships or betrothals that lead to the marriage. How many of you fathers have daughters? Let me see your hands. How many fathers here have unmarried daughters? Let's do that. How many have unmarried daughters? All right. Now, let me warn you of something. You will probably never meet a guy good enough for your daughter. I have four fantastic son-in-laws. And the reason they are is because they met God's expectations. To meet my expectations, they would have had to do this. So I had to throw out my expectations and get God's expectations. That makes us all happy. Fathers, be careful what you expect a young man to do to get your daughter. I'm not saying make it easy. A man was made to face a challenge and appreciate what he has to work for. But make sure your expectations are God's, which will be reasonable. Several times over the years, I counsel with young men about when they pop the question, will you marry me? And about the ring they give the girl. And I've suggested over and over to young men that they do their best to find out what she really likes ahead of time because this is an area that ladies sometimes dream about from the time they're little girls. I have dealt with wives who have been upset at their husband for 20 years and he never even knew it. Expectations relate By the way, girls, if you get the right guy With a ring you don't like, you're better off than if you get the wrong guy with a ring that you do like. What about those who work for you? Yours is a responsibility under God to help them become what God wants them to be. Make sure your expectations of them are not your expectations, but God's. God's expectations will be right, reasonable, and just. Your expectations can easily become wrong and unreasonable and unjust. I was reading a man, uh, wrote a phenomenal book called Character First. Tom Hill's his name, head of Chemray Corporation. He was telling in that book how he has a supervisor in his plant. This supervisor, if he has somebody that he's just hired and they've been there 10 days and they come in late, he said that supervisor will immediately that very day go to them and say, come, we need to sit down and talk. And then look at them and say, now I just need to know, do you really like this job or not? Do you really want this job or not? You do realize that you have to be on time here. Now, if you don't want this job, you can go ahead and quit today and we'll give you a good reference. Everything will be fine. But if you want this job, you're gonna have to be on time. Is that clear? What should you do about in relation to those you work for? Give your expectations to God. If you're being treated wrongly or unjustly, appeal based on what you believe God would see as right. One of the best ways to keep from getting bitter is to not be treated, uh, is to not expect to be treated fairly. I heard about a prisoner who went before a parole review board, expected to get out and instead got 20 more years. Don't expect everybody to treat you right. Don't expect to be remembered on your birthday. Don't expect to be remembered on your anniversary. Keep your word with your children but don't try to shelter your children from every disappointment and difficulty life sends their way. Try to warn your children when you see disappointments coming. Be careful what you expect out of God or any earthly authority figure. If you see what's happening in our day, people expect a normal baby. And if it's not that way, they abort the baby or sue the doctor. You know, sometimes we are like brats with God. Expect whoever you need not to be there when you may need them the worst. Jesus' disciples were confused, more confused than ever, who had always solved their problem. I had a preacher friend who used to tell his children this every night. Mommy loves you. Daddy loves you. Jesus loves you best of all. Why? Because mom and dad won't always be there. That's my mom and dad. But Jesus will always be there. There will be times when you think he isn't there. Did you know you can note the difference between a snake or a worm by the way it reacts when you strike at it? A worm will give you no resistance. A snake is very different. You irritate a snake in any way and he is probably going to strike out at you. When we strike out at people, it is a picture of the serpent. It is a picture of the self-life in us striking out and defending ourselves. You remember that Satan came in the form of a serpent. But Jesus referred to himself as a worm. I am a worm and no man. It was a picture that the selfish self life that strikes out so easily at other people has been destroyed read it with me please everybody gratefulness grows where there is an absence of expectations you put a tropical plant <coughs> excuse me in a tropical environment and it will grow you put it out in the snow in illinois in january it's going to die and that's the way it is with expectations You put gratefulness in the cold environment of expectations, you will not be able to grow a spirit of gratefulness. Ruth was grateful because she was shown kindness She didn't expect to be shown. She didn't feel like she deserved anything. Did you know a young person who expects a car and gets a bicycle is ungrateful? A young person who expects to walk and gets a bicycle is grateful. The prodigal son had everything and was grateful for nothing. Later, he had nothing and he was grateful for something to eat. A man who expects to eat filet mignon with baked potato and green bean and salad and gets a cold chicken leg is ungrateful. A man who expects to go hungry and instead gets a cold chicken leg is grateful. A spirit of gratefulness is born out of the realization: I'm nobody, I'm nothing, I don't deserve anything at all. We were in Papua New Guinea several years ago, twenty years ago now, and after the service one night, the last night we were there, some Simbi pastors. These were almost uh, these were very short men. Our church had paid for all these pastors to come from all over that area and many of them came to the big city and had never been there before. And we took them all out to eat, paid for all of them a meal. They honest, they sat down at the table. Several of them sat down at the table, looked at the fork and spoon and knife and didn't know what it was. One of the most interesting things was this restaurant was right on the seacoast. you could look out a hundred yards and see the ocean waves lapping in and in between the the restaurant and the beach there was a swimming pool there and these folks were going out there looking at that swimming pool they were coming back in saying why did anybody put that there when that was our chander <laughs> but these folks had almost nothing They were sleeping on the concrete floor of the open air church where I was preaching and one night some thieves broke in and stole everything they had. They came by to tell us goodbye and in the middle of the conversation that the missionary Jerry Williams was carrying on with him he found out they'd lost everything they had. And I said, I turned to him and I said, how much was it worth? Listen, this was everything they had they brought with them. They're going back without it. He said, Brother Davis is worth about $15 to $20. Everything they had. We gave them joyfully $20 apiece. And they walked out with tears in their eyes. So grateful They'd been given that. A spirit of gratefulness will change the whole way you look at things, whatever it is. Our society has shifted the emphasis from a spirit of gratitude to get everything you can because you deserve it. Y'all hear about the group of senior citizens sitting around talking about their ailments? One of them said, my arms are so weak, I can't hardly hold up this cup of coffee. Another one said, my cataracts are so bad. I can't even see the coffee. Another one said, I got to where I can't hear anything anymore. Another one said, I can't turn my head because of the arthritis in my neck. Another one said, my blood pressure pills make me dizzy. Another one said, I can't remember what I'm doing half the time. If I don't make myself a note, I forget what I'm trying to do. And another fellow said, you know, I guess that's the price we pay for getting old. One little lady spoke up and said very cheerfully, You know, it's not all that bad. Thank God we all still drive. <laughs> Two thoughts, and I'm done. Number one, quit comparing yourself with everybody else. For we dare not make ourselves with them or compare ourselves with them that commend themselves, but they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. You sit here and you look around and you say, well, that family's got that. That's what that teenage girl's doing. Well, this family's got this. This family's got this. And you know what? What you don't know is what some other family's going through that you don't know anything about. And there is somebody who's got it worse than you do. Have you ever had John Bishop preach here? Somebody's got it worse than you do. Brother Bishop's been with us several times. He's my personal friend going back to 1975. And the time before he was there, he could still see. And one night he got done preaching and he's sitting over here and I sat down on the platform next to him and I said, Brother Bishop, did you have a migraine while you're preaching tonight? He said, yes, sir, I did. He hadn't said one word about it. He hadn't acted like he had a migraine. I said, Brother Bishop, how bad was it? He said, oh, it was about a nine out of ten. He said, Brother Davis, I'm a little dizzy. He said, I don't think I can stay around. He said, better get me to my room. Somebody's got it worse than you got it. Somebody's got it worse than I got it. Quit comparing yourself. When you compare yourself to others, you almost always come up short. You compare your children to somebody else's. You miss how blessed you are while looking at what you don't have. I can hold up a 25 cent quarter and block out the whole sun. And you can hold up one little thing you don't like and block out all the brilliance of God's blessings on your life. And number two, give all your expectations to God. My soul, wait thou only upon God for my expectation is from him. God is perfect, he will not fail you. Your husband is perfect, they will fail you. Your wife is imperfect, she will fail you. Your children are imperfect, your parents imperfect. Give your expectations to God. Free things up where God can work in and through your life however he wants to do so. Would you bow with me please?